before I bring Brian on and uh, on some things that like I had a lot of skepticism about. And it turns out my skepticism is is not really valid. Maybe. It doesn't seem like it is, at least as much as I thought. Let's start out with somebody that kind of shared my view of this. And this was about the fodder growing system. So this is this rack with climate control and lights and hydroponics, and it would grow barley into fodder for your horses and cattle, and one square of this stuff is supposed to be enough feed uh, for a horse or a cow. And my thought was, I just don't think it's enough. So let's hear from one person. Um, this is named Matthew, and Matthew and I but might both apparently be wrong here. And I'll, I'll give you some information from somebody else following it up. I just want to give both sides of the, the coin here because I think there's some natural skepticism, and I want to make sure that we look at this holistically. Um, I'm not an expert. I haven't dealt with livestock almost 20 years. That being said, I grew up in Oklahoma around people who had livestock and spent a summer or two living with a cousin who was, had a gas station and a horse she was boarding for someone. Guess who took care of the horse uh, while the adults ran the gas station? Not the neighbors, me. Additionally, I spent a winter and spring living with uh, Mormon foster parents who owned a ranch and ice-making plant. I was required to work both places, and this was how they made their money and livelihood. So I have some experience with livestock. And since one of the easiest things for small people to do on a ranch is put feed out for animals when they're out grazing or whatever they uh, they do when they aren't uh, being fattened for sale, I fed a few animals, goats, horses, cows, fish, cats, dogs, people, etc. So when I hear you describe the Craigslist ad uh, for the feed grow box, I was interested and skeptical. I really want technological and unconventional solutions to work, and I really wanted this to work, and I'm not saying it won't. It won't work with the pie in the sky ease this guy shows. I could get to the math. I won't, though. Your summation on the show, watching a horse eat more than one of the mats of barley that this guy says would feed one cow for a day while laying on a fence talking to a pal. Not for a food production or working animal. Not at all. Nope. Not enough mass or nutrition, period. Your summation of it being a good lean time measure is correct. It would also feed a pet animal such as a goat or a potbelly pig or a pony. I don't know how much it costs to run, but I imagine there are cheaper, easier ways to feed your pets. In fact, since I had chickens and ducks as pets as a child. In rural areas I grew up in, pets fed themselves much of the time, and we gave them a bowl. We'd put scraps in some food, feed during the hottest part of the summer. Also had rabbits. We had to feed them as they were caged and couldn't forage. Uh, here's the exciting part about the guy's idea. It has some really exciting uses. Goats. If someone had a small goat farm, say 20 to 50 goats, I'm not sure how fast the seed to feed time is on the boxes, but I think you could feed 20 to 50 goats with two to three of the boxes all year uh, if you can't grow stuff outside for various reasons. Same goes for rabbits and chickens. And he goes on for a couple more paragraphs, but you get the point. Like This guy looked at it, and this is a guy that's you know had a lot more large stock experience than I have and said, it just, it just ain't enough food. And that was my gut, too. And then I got an email from some folks at a place called QuartzRidgeRanch.com uh, that have a different take. And basically, their only problem with the system is apparently the dadgone thing costs about 15 grand, And they don't think you need 15 grand for one of these things. And they have their own way of doing it. And here are some answers. A couple of answers to your questions and statements on the show on 12.3. One, the barley is not grown in a medium. It's purely a hydroponic setup. So you're basically putting a stack of barley in there and sprouting it and growing it to a certain size and then feeding it to the animals. You got that, guys? Two, since the animal is eating the roots and the shoots, it is nutrient and caloric dense. Three, you feed the animal 1% to 2% of their body weight. 
So a horse would need approximately 15 pounds of food in a day, which works out to about one tray. The animal will absorb 80% of the nutrients in the fodder compared to less than 20% in dry grass. Five, the barley fodder can be grown in any temperature-controlled environment. And the final statement, you do not need to spend 15 grand on a setup like you were referring to. We did our own in our basement, the cost of seed trays, $2 each, racks we already had in our shop, a heater, and a swamp cooler. That doesn't come close to what they want you to spend. I know this is becoming a very popular uh, for homesteaders. I would love to help your listeners learn more about how to get started. Uh, Teresa from Quartz Ridge Ranch. Teresa, do me a favor. Please go by the website today. Click on Guest. Fill out the Guest Submission form. Uh, get it over me to today. I'm currently booking guests in February. Anybody that wants to be on the show, you need to understand, if you want to be on the show in three months, you need to be getting in touch with us now. That's how far out we stay booked. So we would book you in February at the next available slot, Teresa, to have you want to talk about this. I am very interested in having you on. I think this is another really interesting thing. Just a brief overview for those that may not have understood what I've talked about so far or didn't hear yesterday's show and are kind of like, what is this? You take these big trays, I'd say they're about two and a half feet by one feet trays, about the size of a, of a flat of like flowers or vegetables you would buy, about that size. You fill it up with, with seed, barley for horses, but there's other things you could use. You put it underneath grow lights, you water it hydroponically, which means it's just water, just kept wet. It sprouts, it grows very fast, it's ready to feed in about five to seven days from the research I've done so far. And then you take that whole mat and you just throw it out there for your horse or your goat or your chicken if it's whatever it is. And I didn't really kind of get in my head the concept of you're, you're actually feeding a big sprout. So it's not just they're going to eat the grass off the top of a grow medium and you're going to replant it or let it regrow. You're going to put the seed down again and they're eating the whole root mass. And I can see a, you know, a two and a half by one foot mat weighing 15 to 20 pounds definitely. Um, I also think there's a huge opportunity here. Uh, Joel Salatin has talked about doing this with chickens. I think that if you think about how this could work, Let's say you're doing chickens on pasture with chicken tractors or paddocks, but that chicken absolutely is not going to get enough to grow fast to broiler size from just the pasture. You need some things to, to supercharge that growth rate. Well, if you did this approach, and I think there's, it doesn't always have to be grow lights. Uh, in the right climates, I think this could be done using, why do we need fake solar light when we have lots of it? Uh, or maybe some kind of hybrid of that, but we need it some way to keep it from getting too hot or too cold. But we should be able to sprout this stuff like crazy. And if we can do that for our chickens, then we can take and multiply the nutritional value of feed seed by, oh, I don't know, four or five times what it is. So that 50 pounds becomes 200 pounds or more. And I'll tell you what, when we start looking at feeding ruminants this way, instead of using grain feed, there, so, you know, me, I don't think we need to be eating a lot of wheat and barley. I think it's bad for human beings. It has, um, a, a derogatory effect on the gut when people say to me, though, well, what about sprouting? I, it's a different thing once it's sprouted. Now I'm eating something, a totally different thing. It's been transformed. Well, taking that supercharged energy and putting that into pastured poultry. Wow. And so then that begets the question of, well, what types of seed mixes are optimum 
for feeding chickens. Does this work for quail? Quail, to me, have always been pretty much a seed and insect eater. I don't know that quail are big on things like this. Would you want the sprouts to only have just sprouted to feed them to quail? So does this dovetail into the work we're going to be doing with quail going forward? I'm not sure yet. But if we were doing this for rabbits, we probably don't necessarily just want to do this with barley. Clover seed's pretty inexpensive. This that it'll work too. What would be an optimum seed mix for a northern rabbit versus a southern rabbit? Are there ways to tailor this to help the animal better cope with natural stresses and produce a better end product, whether it be an egg, a broiler chicken, uh, a rabbit that we're going to dress out, a goat, even an animal that's on pasture, if this is a supplemental feed? I, I think there's a lot of work to be done here. And I think the concept of 15 grand for someone that looks like a computer cabinet that does it for you is a bad place for money to be spent. But I think building these systems ourselves is, in, is effective. It's low cost. It can be fully automated. The QuartzRidgeRanch.com and uh, QuartzRidgeRanch.wordpress.com I'll put in the show notes today so you can go look at the work they've done. I'll link right down to the two posts they've done on their fodder system so you can see it. It's very simple. They go out and water it three times a day with a hose. That's it. And the water drains off and is used for irrigation. Now, they're talking about how they can automate that to where all you got to do is go in every day, pull your, your mats out of the bottom, take them out to feed, refill them, pull the, pull everything down a level, stick them up on top, start the process over again. Uh, and again, they did this in a basement. To me, depending on the climate, this could be done in a shed. Uh, and I think there's a potential for this to be done outdoors, either in a greenhouse in the wintertime, because you're talking about things that will do well, even with temperatures dipping below the freezing point, uh, for most of these, most of these crops that you would be growing, or in a shade, uh, structure, so there's not too much heat, so a shade house in the, uh, summer. And, I mean, I'm really looking at this being a real big component of the work that we're going to be doing uh, on our new homestead. And I wanted to share this with you guys. And, again, uh, Teresa from Quartz Ridge Ranch, I'd love to have you on the show to talk about this. I really would. And I'd love to get a lot of folks over on 13 Skills onto this skill. And uh, on my little, you know, treatsy yesterday on 13 Skills, I would say this would go under something like livestock husbandry uh, or maybe uh, hydroponics. And I don't think we, you know what? I'd say this goes under hydroponics because this is hydroponically growing. And I know we have aquaponics as a skill. I don't think we have hydroponics as a skill. And shame on me, that is a completely separate discipline. I'm going to set up today a hydroponics main skill set. I'd like to see some of you guys take this one on. I'd love to see the projects that come out of it. One more little announcement on 13 skills before I bring Brian on. I want you guys to realize something. When you set your goal, so you say, I'm going to take uh, uh, hydroponics, and I'm going to build a fodder system. Underneath your goal, there's a little thing where you can stick a link in. It would be a great idea, for instance, for the Quartz Ridge Ranch folks, if they're going to do that, to stick that in there and underneath it, don't just link to your blog, link to the tag. So, you know, a fodder system. So it's all the posts that are just related to the fodder system. This site can really become an amazing way to share resources, ideas, projects, and we're going to make it better so you can connect more. I've been talking to our developer about a long-term partnership. We seem to be heading in that direction. Uh, and if we have that, with the, you know, the sky's the limit. It's just how long it takes to get there. Uh, so if you haven't joined 13skills.com uh, yet, this is just another example 
of what's going to come out of this and make it more than just something I talk about on the show. To actually build communities and sub-communities around the individual skill sets and goals where you guys can connect with each other on Facebook, the forum, YouTube, Twitter, however you want. All the, all the ways that you could ever be connected with social media-wise are there. And uh, I invite you guys to get on over the 13 skills. I also want to tell you one more thing about it before I get off and, and bring Brian on. Um, I know that you know occasionally on this show, I'll say a four-letter word or two or sometimes three if I'm really upset. Um, there's certain things I don't say and certain content I won't go into, but this is an adult show. I want you guys to know that 13skills.com will always be a complete family-friendly environment. It is not a podcast. It's not a show. It's a community-building thing. There will never be any adult content there. It will not be tolerated. I shouldn't say it will never be there. Because sooner or later, spammers and people like that will come in. Um, but we'll police that community, and any t anybody that does anything like that will be immediately deleted and uh, banned from the site. So, But what I'm saying is the content we put there will not necessarily be of the same level of adult content that you sometimes hear on the Survival Podcast. And I know plenty of people let their kids listen to this show and just say, You know, we don't, we don't use those words. Jack uses those words for emphasis as an adult and kids don't do that or whatever. And it's, it's up to people how they police that in their own home. I just want you to know if you want to have, you know, a, a youth group from a church or something like that over on 13 Skills, it's a different, it's a community apart, but connected to back to TSP. Just wanted y'all to know that. All right. With that, let's go ahead and get Brian on. We got a lot of cool stuff to talk about with him. Again, Brian Newhouse worked as a Peace Corps volunteer in the Cape Verde Islands. That's off the coast of Africa, by the way, folks. Cycled around New Zealand, built wind turbines around the United States, volunteered with Habitat for Humanity in Costa Rica, um, and as an all-hands volunteer in Haiti. And he started a nonprofit called Village 12 in the Dominican Republic, and uh, that's kind of evolved into the concept of Permaville, uh, which goes along with his new book called Permaville. He's here to talk to us today, and with that, hey, Brian, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Uh, thanks, Jack. Uh, good to be here. Hey, dude, um, when I got your uh, guest request, I was really excited because of what you're doing. I've kind of told people a little bit about it in the introduction segment, But, you know, just starting off with the whole thing, you're calling this thing Permaville. What is Permaville all about? Well, I guess uh, it's a project I've, I've been working on for a long time. I guess the name itself, it's related to permaculture. And I took the permaculture uh, design course about a year and a half ago on, online. And, uh, and I found that it, it mainly focuses on uh, food production and it kind of touches on, you know, natural building structures and, and these other sorts of things. And I thought that My background is more in Peace Corps. I've served, uh, I've uh, volunteered in Haiti and a couple other places, and I've kind of uh, been thinking more about the holistic community, kind of all the other elements that are involved in it, as far as like uh, child care and health care and small business development and these kind of things. So I thought that by calling it Permaville, it, it kind of encompasses all of those things and really tries to, to picture the, the long term. Uh, or address the long-term uh, issues in a lot of different places. Now, it's interesting you say that the PDC you took didn't really focus on, you know, heavily on the building structures and things like that. Um, I think that a lot of people will find that that's highly dependent on which PDC you take. Um, yes. For instance, the the one if you took the one back when when Mollison was still teaching that he and Jeff Lawton did together, I'd say. 20, 25% is on structures, building, homes, orientation, 
designing communities, and then others are going to focus more on almost like an urban side. And I think that one thing people need to be like careful of if they have a certain goal with a PDC, and I, I bet you would kind of say the same thing, is to really know what the PDC you're taking is going to cover because there is some latitude from one stru- uh, instructor to the next. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's it, it, depending on how they you structure the class, you know, that every curriculum is different depending on where it is, the the climate, the the goals, you know, the things they're going for. I guess uh, with Permaville, I'm, ma- I'm mainly trying to say, here's how everything everything fits together. You know, we have engineers who build br- bridges, but we also have social workers who take care of kids, and we have people working in in business and finance and agriculture and it's like we i just think people need to understand how everybody fits together so that we can sort of appreciate all of the different facets that can bring together a, a community you know and on that uh, a lot of times people ask me like why do you why do you do the survival podcast why do you focus on permaculture why do you do this why do you do that and my answer generally is some version of well because we have problems right and we ha- or we have a problem right and it seems like there's there're problems Everywhere. So generally when somebody comes up with a solution-oriented thing, it's because there's a problem that it's a response to. So what are what is the problem or the big problems that you're trying to solve with Permaville? Well, I guess uh, <clears throat> I, I kind of based the book on uh, – there was this fact that came out about five years ago that said that as many people now worldwide live in cities as do rural areas. And I think this is, this is an interesting turning point. Because cities, they they consume a lot of things. They they provide a lot of amenities. They have water and food and jobs and lots of good things going on. But they, it's also a, a lot of them are very unsustainable, and depending on fossil fuels and so on and so forth. And then you have rural areas on the other hand that don't necessarily have all those things. You know, people still don't have water and healthcare and all these other things. So I think that uh, the challenges are most people find themselves in one of those two categories. And uh, so it, the, the book kind of lays out how to assess where you're at by asking specific questions about the 12, 12 areas of community. And then it presents over 180 solutions depending on your site, which is, as we were discussing earlier, your, your, um, the conditions of your site and what kind of you want to get out of this sort of study. That's interesting, and what I'm trying, what I've kind of seen, because I haven't read your book yet, um, but just from looking at your work and and the write up you gave me for the show, that it's almost like this kind of convergence point between the rural community and the urban urban community, and trying to take much of what both of them have uh, and and bring them together. And what I've said over the years is I see the suburbs as a dying failed experiment that. Yes that people are going to either get into higher density or lower density situations that I'm not one of these people who wants to shove everybody into cities. In fact, I think that would be a bad thing. But if you want dramatic inefficiency, it's it's not the rural eco kind of thing, and it's not the urban density thing. It's the thing in the middle. So it's like you're trying to like get a bridge there but do it with common sense. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's uh – it's definitely kind of what what suburbs are. I um, mean, I grew up in one, and it's less dense. It's not as dense as an urban area, and it's kind of more spread out. Uh, I mean, it's tighter. It's tighter together than a rural area, but it's still not. I don't know. I guess that's that, yeah. That's the kind of medium that we're going for. Yeah, but, I mean, it's like the suburbs expect all of the third party delivery of services that an urban area gets. 
they and then but they want to do it at this much more distributed uh, infrastructure that requires so much more in labor intensive things where the rural person generally takes some of that on themselves even if it's just well they take on their own water with a well where the the suburbanite wants the same exact conveniences of somebody who lives in a building that has 40 families in it but they want to do it with a half of an acre and, you know, leave it to Beaver to look to the front yard. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. And, and it's, uh, but yeah, I guess it's putting a lot more stress on the system. And then we're going to have to rethink all of these things in order to be able to, to provide these amenities at a lot less cost and energy and, and money and everything. But uh, I guess it, I don't know, it starts with figuring out where you're at and kind of coming up with <clears throat> I mean, the, the 12 different areas. It's water, food, sanitation, health care, family, shelter, education, transportation, environment, business, energy, technology. I guess it's to run through them real quick. And then, but then you just kind of figure out where you want to go. And you're like, well, I want to be isolated. I want to be able to at least have this, this security in water, food security, sanitation security and all that. And then try to plug in those goals. So I don't know. And it could work whether you're in, in a suburban area or an urban area or a rural area. It's just uh, basically addressing the needs. Now I'm going to ask you a question that might sound a little adversarial, but it's not. It's just maybe to help you help yourself with the audience. Sure. Um, because we get a lot of people in the whole alternative world, the permaculture world, the alternative energy world that are, that have uh, something to sell. I call it hopium. Right, you know, like opium or smoking opium, no. uh, and, and generally when somebody says I have a, a, a list of, uh, you know, I don't remember how many solutions did you say there are in the book? Uh, they're about 180. Okay, so 180 solutions to 12 areas of need, um, and and we can do this, and this makes sense. The question then becomes, what makes you qualified to to do that? What what about your background has led you to a place where you can? summarize this stuff into uh, potential solutions? Sure, that, that's a fair question. Um, I was, <clears throat> I guess I started thinking about this stuff. I was in the Peace Corps about five years ago in uh, the Cape Verde Islands, and I was a high school teacher out there, and it's these islands off of Africa, off of West Africa. And I taught high school, and Mike, another friend in town, she was a social worker, and other people were, the, the other Peace Corps volunteers, they were working with agriculture and education and technology and all these areas. And I was thinking the whole time, I was like, this is great. I was like, they, they sent people with some skills to go abroad and to pay us a fair living stipend, and we're just pretty much doing, you know, work, focusing in on, on our area. And I started wondering, I was like, are there a limited number of areas and I started thinking about this, and I was like, well, you know, the needs here in Cape Verde are the same as the needs I would have in my home in Georgia, as well as in any other country. And then I, so I came back, and I started building websites. I thought that if Peace Corps volunteers around the world could, could put their work online into one place, this would be just an amazing database of really breakthrough, effective projects going on around the world. Uh, as it turns out, it didn't, I didn't have as much success communicating with Peace Corps, uh, mainly, I think, because they have red tape all over the place, government, and so on and so forth. Uh, so then I started thinking, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how much in depth you want me to go, but it's, so I started thinking about the government. You know, we're, we're paying government all these taxes. To what end? To what end? Like, what's the end goal? So I, so I was like, well, if we can, 
invest in our local infrastructure and these sorts of things, then we, we may not need to pay as many taxes. So I started thinking about that angle of it. And about this time, I was uh, going to go down to Haiti and volunteer for a little bit. And I had some experience volunteering down there with All Hands and um, learned that sort of organizational program as how they're setting that up to enable people to go in there and volunteer and then earlier this year in Dominican Republic, I, uh, I started a nonprofit working with Haitians in the Dominican Republic, trying to launch this this whole plan. But I mean, as as uh, it's clear, it's such a broad scope that I, I didn't focus enough on fundraising and ran out of money, and then I had to go back to work. So now I've just uh, finished working for a couple months and trying to figure out where to put my feet. But I guess that's kind of how I arrived at this thing. I think the important thing there is that you've lived in different parts of the world and actually seen what happens when people don't have these things that we depend on. And in some ways, I I would venture that they're more prepared than the average American is because they don't automatically assume that turning the faucet on and water is going to come out and drive to the store and there'll be fresh milk, et cetera. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and when they don't have water and these sorts of things, then they they just walk down to the river and get it. And oftentimes they have to walk really far. Or I mean, it's it's different challenges in all these different places. And uh, the the community I was working with in Dominican Republic didn't they didn't have toilets, and they would walk. You'd always see people walking around with either a bowl of of pee or uh, just a plastic bag, and they go out and chuck it in the back. It's just it's like we're we're we need to be past this. <laughs> it's, yeah. We 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 gotta you know like we need to be able to provide these things to all people and these people that should not have to go through the embarrassment of where they're going to chuck their poop that day you know it's forty five year old mothers and you know are having to do this every day and it's like they just don't know and they don't have the resources and I think if we can go in there with a really tight plan on what do they need how are we going to get it and what's the long term plan with these some of the solutions I outline in the book I, I think you can have a lot of success. Now, that's interesting because a lot of the people that are, let's say, hesitant to embrace permaculture as a concept often think that that's what we permaculturists want them to do. You know, we want them to live with a poop bowl and and, and to have to take care of that manually every day. Uh, and what we're actually saying is, well, we'd like to actually prevent everybody from having to do that because if enough systems fail here, we're going to end up like they are there, and there's a better way to do this on both sides. Well, absolutely, and that that brings uh, to a, another sort of anecdote based on the on the toilets. The whole time I was down there, you know, they didn't have toilets, and I found this is really one of the biggest priorities. And I asked, I was saying, you know, if you can install compost toilets, then you wouldn't have to waste water, and you know, all the benefits of that. And they were like, "No, man, we want what you have. We want what's, you know, you had a at, at the time I was staying in these apartments, and I had a flush toilet, and they're like." You know, they, they see the Hollywood, they see the rich America. They're like, that's what I want. I want money. I want a big car. I want to look nice. And I want flush toilets. And so when I was, it was they, they saw it as sort of imposing this sort of second class toilet. They're like, no, no. So that's really forced me to, I, I don't know, it's just taught me that you got you to gotta do before you can show. And I think... At the time, I didn't really have a, a base camp set up, but I think I'd like to, if you can build these demonstration projects. And I've seen things going on online where people are, are building these base camps where people can go and learn about these things. I think that'd be a good way to to get a program like this going. 
You know, it's interesting because, like, one of the, you know, I've talked about my wife about living off grid and talked about things like a composting toilet and all. And she's like, oh, hell no. And you would, you would think the person that currently has a poop bowl would consider that to be a real upgrade. So it's like we've so successfully marketed uh, the American lifestyle. And I would say, to be fair, it's not the American lifestyle. It's the first world lifestyle. Sure. The, the people that are in the, the, the third or maybe even the fourth world want to skip right by everything and go directly to that. And you, what you're saying is in some instances they're not really interested in alternatives in the middle. No, they, they, they don't appreciate it yet. They're like huh. – they they don't it's difficult for them to to see they're like well you know a Hummer would be an awesome car to drive and but not to recognize the environmental impact and, and the higher costs and well it, it, and it's also about dependency you know when you have these cars and you do have a public water system that you can flush your water with it's you're it's there and it's convenient but you're still dependent on it so as you mentioned you know on how, how Americans are going to have to take a step back I think it's uh, I don't know, sort of analyzing where you are and where you're dependent on things and try to cut that back as far as possible. You know, in some instances, I don't really consider it a step back. I consider it a step forward for both the developed and the developing world. Uh, but that, that you know, but it's, it's a matter of perspective, right? So it sure. seems like a definite step back to have a system where when you use the bathroom, all the stuff that you've, let's say, deposited – doesn't leave your property, but if it's handled properly, it doesn't require a lot of work from you, and it contributes to the fertility of a food production system, it's not really a step back. It's really a step forward, but we've ingrained in our mindset that forward always means we do less, and everything's less of our problem, and everything that we don't want goes away. You know, it's almost the third ethic showing the the real meaning because you know the, some people have tried to change the third ethic to be the redistribution of surplus. Well, surplus isn't always a good thing. Mm-hmm. Manure of human beings is also a surplus, and, we, and the problem we have right now is redistributing it. Right, sure. where what we're supposed to be doing is returning surpluses. Sure, and, and we actually solve problems when we start taking surpluses, good and bad, and returning them to systems of production. Then we get abundance, and we can do plenty of charity and distribution from there. Yeah, but you've got to grab that. But that kind of brings me in it to an interesting point of, you know, question. You got to get this across to the person in the developing world. You also got to get this across to the person in the developed world. So, with your book and with your work, who is your target audience is it one, the other, or both? <laughs> that, that, that's that's a very fair question, um, and, I, and I guess I find myself kicking that around right now. Um, I, I mean, I I think it, it could be something as far as is eco village development. I mean, if this works, then you would be creating an abundance, as you say. You know, we live in an area in a time of scarcity and there's not enough and not enough. But if we can get these systems going, well, it'll be an area of abundance. So you really could go out and design an entire neighborhood and build houses one by one uh, using volunteer labor and doing these training programs to really dramatically cut costs on the house and then be able to sell the house. So at the end, you'd be able to fund this program and – be creating the environment that I think people are going to want. So it's not the suburban home or the, well, I mean, I guess it could be in any, in any area, but uh, I mean, it it all comes down to money. And a few months ago I I ran out of money trying to do it and I was thinking too large and didn't think enough about it, but it's, if this is going to work, I think this is something that people are going to want to buy. Hoping. 
So, I mean, that's like the market for the, the book itself, right? Where do you see the, the, the concept being maybe implemented most, though, then? Uh, uh, well, I guess anywhere where people need a permanent infrastructure, it could be. I mean, that if you live in an urban environment or a suburban environment, as, as you were saying, you know, we still have all these services, but it's putting a lot of stress on the system, so that might be a potential target audience. Uh, people just looking for a whole other lifestyle where they have their water security and food security and energy security, and they have confidence that their business is going to be around uh, for the next six months or 12 months. And it's, I mean, I would, I would think it could apply to a lot of people. Uh, Do you think maybe you see the potential for people getting together and using this kind of as a guidebook to develop, you know, the often uh, lauded and talked about and seldom built eco-village? I I think so, yes. Okay. Because I'd definitely like to see more of it, but everybody wants to, to build one, and I, I think that people generally don't realize that there's not a lot stopping people from doing it right now. Mm-hmm. It, it's that everybody wants to, I don't know, be dictator or lord of the dadgone thing and wants enough money to do it from, from their end instead of realizing that a village is a group of people, not a, a family. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and I think... Right now, the book, it focuses on, on a lot of the infrastructural elements, you know, solar panels and water, water wells and things like that. And actually, one of the criticisms I found is in, in sending it out, I, I heard from a woman who wrote a book on uh, eco-village development, and she said that it's missing the um, – Kind of the part, the part of actually running the eco village of what do you do when people, you know, misbehave and how do you, how do you deal with those sorts of things? And those are things that I, I, I've never experienced because I've never actually lived in, a, in an eco village, but it seems like this would be the first part of imagining uh, what sort of environment you do want to live in. It's amazing the first person, the first thing a person finds a fault with is the lack of government and control. <laughs> <laughs> because because my view is that something like this, I mean, obviously you have to have a system in place so that Joe can't go over to Frank's house and, and take one of his kids and claim it as his own. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have more than enough laws in our society already to, to handle that, and that something like this should be as voluntarist as possible so that you know, there's kind of a vision of what it's supposed to be, and you would expect that the most of the people that got involved with the Dadgon thing would be on board with that, or they'd go do it somewhere else. So I, I don't know that that's really a problem, but I think that's a problem of we have way too many people or way too much of a weighted edge in permaculture of the big government type and not enough of the live-free type, and I think we need more people like that because – I promise you, I'm going to get a copy of this book, and I might have some feedback for you and some things that I think you can do better, but I can promise you that lack of regulation won't be one of them. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, I, I'm happy about that. It's, I think we're sort of on the same page. You, you know, and um, going back to the abundance and scarcity thing, I think I saw this YouTube video, this group uh, somewhere in the United Kingdom, and these and this guy was interviewing. He's like, hey, I'm here. I have my little kid. I, I my wife. We're going to come and live here, and my livelihood is going to be to make wooden bowls. And then this interview, this other guy, and he was going to, like, build the houses. And so a- as people made the, the integration into a new community, their livelihood and what their job is was a significant part of that transaction or 
that movement there. So I think that, that the job development is going to be a really interesting and important element of, of getting, making the whole thing tie together. You know, if everybody has a responsibility already laid out before they go in there, then uh, I don't know, it seems it may help it out. Yeah, I think one of the things you, you'll deal with there is that a lot of people, and this is a problem I have with the general permaculture community overall, is everybody's thought is I'll go grow a bunch of food and I'll sell it. Well, if you build a permaculture village right, most of the food needs that can be produced on site are going to be produced in such a distributed manner. There's not going to be a huge local market for food production of locally produced food because everybody's going to be producing some. There'll be some because some people will want to be a blacksmith or a computer programmer or something like that. They're only going to do so much of that side of it. But you're going to attract people that are all going to want to garden in the backyard. And, you know, I I haven't read your book, but I'm thinking common areas with, with, you know, overstory fruit trees and things like that, where you're trying to produce enough of a surplus to actually create an income for the society. So people have to come in with some other value add um, or if it's primarily agricultural then that value add has to create somewhat of an export economy which I think I think it's got a really bad rap um, in in our society because it's so overused for things we don't need it for we don't see the value anymore for things that we do need it for for instance I hear people oh it's all this export and everything should be local and then they're eating a chocolate bar but it's a really good quality organic chocolate bar. I understand all that, but we don't grow a lot of cocoa in Texas, and we damn sure ain't growing it in Vermont. So we need to have like this this concept. Like so, instead of regulation, now you're talking about the business principles. How do you how do you pay the bills? How do you you know whatever's left of the bills? How do you acquire the things you can't produce? And that is the same to me as any other village or city or town. It's skill sets and knowledge. Mm-hmm. Sure. And that's and there. Yeah, there are going to be lots of responsibilities to be to be taken care of. And if you can make anything in abundance, that would be certainly one way to uh, to make some income. To, uh, one, one example I'm, I'm really going on is uh, to basically like ecotourism. Have people come and stay at your place. If this really is this this place where you have uh, several families living and everybody's farming the land and everybody has a little job, like I think a lot of people from outside the community, you know, if if there is this great interest in people learning about this type of lifestyle, I think you can have people come and stay. They can volunteer. They can do education. And these are services. These aren't, you know, there's no, no stress on resources or anything. It's just basically sharing the knowledge of how to run this community. And I think... You know, I've been approached with concepts of building communities like this, and one of the things I always end up roping people back to is they all want to go into farming for a living or fruit for a living or nuts for a living or livestock for a living. And my thoughts are always, you know, if you put together something, let's say we we put together a 100-acre place and we brought in um, 60 families and everybody got kind of an acre to manage themselves and we had 40 more acres there and we're going to do common areas and businesses and things like, you know, like a market area and and what have you. You still have a pretty good-sized section that could be maybe 10, 15 acres. It's really like a community farm, so to speak, and members can participate in that however they want, and yeah, you can produce something, but 15 acres of production, and then even the distributed production of, say, another 10 throughout, you're not going to produce 100% of the needs of the community. You will produce a surplus of some things that, okay, we have enough almonds, right, that type of thing, um, which can be sold and, and create an income for the entire system, 
But the real money would be tourism and education. Sure. And that if everybody had an ownership stake in that cash flow, mm-hmm. now you've got something. And people say, you know, is that communism or whatever? I don't know what it is, but I know it's not communism because you've had to then buy your way into that. If you're talking about starting something from scratch here in the first world, somebody coming in is is putting up the cost of that acre, that development, and they're bringing everything that they have to it. So it's it's more of voluntary collective ownership, which is completely the opposite of socialism or communism. It's involuntary collective responsibility, right? So this is voluntary collective ownership and a receipt, like a dividend. If I buy one share in your company, then when a dividend's paid out, I get one share of the distribution. So in a situation like this, you know, you could even say we're sell- if you wanted to do this as a business, we're selling it in one-acre lots and we're not letting any one person buy more than four because we want a diversity in here, you know? Sure. Um, and then you have one lot is one share in the total distribution. Uh-huh. I, I think there's a lot of opportunity if people get creative so that the person saying, what am I coughing up $20,000 for an acre of land for? You know, it's not just a, an acre of dirt. You're surrounded by these other people. You're participating. Mm-hmm. And a profit center that's developed will then be distributed back to ownership. Sure, sure. And, and as my friend Kit was just telling me, you you can market this towards security. Like your you have your water security, you have food security, you have the you know. I, I think that's something that that people want. And if you can show that you know you you are building this and it could continue to generate some revenue through tourism or these other things, then that would be further incentive for people to to set up. Well, let's do this. I want to help you sell some books, so let's tease some people. You've got twelve areas. And 180 solutions against those 12 areas. Let's go through a few of them. We'll start with water because you mentioned that. What's one example of a of a solution, a permaculture solution to water issues from your book? Ah, uh, well, there could be. Uh, shoot, you could set up fog nets on a mountain if you're if you are near uh, clouds. You can actually collect it, collect water from the from the rain clouds. Uh, you could dig a well. You could do a water wheel. You could set it, a water wheel is this thing you could set up into a, a running stream that constantly turns and it slowly pumps water out. Um, when I was in Dominican, there's we had these ceramic water filters that are um, lined with carbon and silver, and silver is anti uh, antibacterial, so it filters the water. And that's <clears throat> and I think that let's talk a little bit about this cloud net thing. How's that work? That sounds really cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's these. My friend Nate built built some on on the island that he was on, and he uh, it's just these big uh, plastic mesh things, kind of like chicken wire or chicken fence. Mm-hmm. Chicken wire is metal, but I don't know some kind of plastic fence, and you just tie them together. And I want to say he built them. It was probably like three meters high by maybe twenty meters long. And it, you can get, you know, say they got like a thousand liters of water a day, then that's they're up on this mountain. They don't have to pump it up the hill. And uh, and if it's up on the top of the hill, it, I mean, the thing that people always need to keep in mind with water is you can't move it up for free, but you can move it down for free all you want. I like that. You know, there's certain there's very few constants in nature, really, when it comes to design. Yeah. And water goes at right angle to contour. That's one of them. Yeah. And and we always need to be thinking about that because if I want it to go up, I've got to expend energy. Like you can do it with a water wheel, and it's renewable and it's continuous, but it requires moving parts. Even a, what they call them, a ramp up, a hydraulic ramp up, still requires moving parts, even though it's passive. 
But if I've already got the water up high, the only thing I need to move it downhill is a pipe or a hose or a trough or a ditch or anything. Yeah. And if you have enough of it, you can make electricity out of it. But that's uh... without using any of it. Yeah. Right. It goes through something, turns a turbine, runs hydro, comes out the other end. I haven't damaged it, heated it up, cooled it. I haven't done anything to it. Mm-hmm. It still gets to where it's going, and I can still use it for other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let, let's move on to the, the food one. What are some of your solutions in your book to the food issue? Because, I mean, they got you got 50,000 people out here listening to you right now that store food, so obviously they care. Sure. Sure. Well, I, and I guess uh, that through each one of these 12 chapters, I, I've spent a lot of time sort of exploring our relationship to them. So, for example, in the water ch- chapter, it's like everyone, you know, we have to take somehow get the water from the earth, either from the sky, from the, the land or below the land. Then we have to purify it. And then we have to get it to us. And then we have to try to recycle it. So that's it's sort of that cycle that we're, that we're going through. And in the food one. No matter where we are, it's the same same sort of thing. We grow the food from the ground and either feed it to the animals, and then we we prepare it for our consumption, and then we, well, I guess just eat it, and that could be in terms of a market or a restaurant or anything like that. Um, so, and I, in permaculture, this really goes through this in, in a lot, and I learned a lot through just reading about that. But you know, you have uh, composting tea and compost pile, and then plant gilding, trying to put plants that, that grow well together, and then all the different types of uh, permaculture styles. You can do culture or um, square foot gardens, structure planting, vertical gardening, food forests, the keyhole gardening where you put the compost in the middle of it, and that kind of feeds off off of the soil there. And, and, and I'll say that I, I have tried to find a place to do a lot of these projects over the last several years, but... <laughs> It, this is a lot of it is theoretical. I have been able to experiment with some of them, but I've been more, I guess, uh, consumed with how to arrange all these ideas into this this formidable framework. Framework, sorry. Uh, well, you know, I, I think that anybody, no matter how practiced is a permaculturist, I think even Lawton or Mollison or Hemingway would would say on some levels the same thing because we all have finite resources, funding, ge- geography uh, resources, things like that. So the good news is we do know they work though because we can observe them working somewhere else. Exactly, exactly, and thus and thus try to to replicate. Um, I, I think aquaponics is really one of my favorite ones. It's something that yeah, I mean, you know, just the whole uh, reciprocity of growing the fish and the plants. It's such a nice system, and uh, that's there's some good businesses and things sprouting up on, online. I found that are turning this into something that's commercially viable, which is. Always such a huge bonus. Well, and I mean, I am becoming more and more enamored with aquaponics, and I think there is a big opportunity for the large commercial scale stuff, and people need to do that. But I'm seeing like, okay, so we were talking earlier about how do you create income. So one of the things I see as being a tremendous opportunity for the small person in aquaponics is perfect the system from recycled materials, from new materials. Well, I don't care what it is, perfect it, and and know that. Every time I put a system in, I need five of these, six of those, three of those, one of these, two of these, and be able to source and stock and distribute that so that they can go in and set up systems for people. Yeah. And in an eco-village, well, you know, we do still have this thing called mail and shipping services. So you could market like this system is proven and here's all of our systems in place, in our, and you can have one just like this. And if you have ecotourism, it, it, permaculture is so multidisciplinary. It is not just 
growing things, right? It's, it's how you run a business. It's how you run a household. It's how you can run a society. So just like when I make one input into a field of manure, I'm not just giving it fertility. I'm also, if I'm feeding my animals right, giving it minerals, is I bring ecotourism and I have people coming in that are seeing the aquaponic system now creating a market for the production of this, you know, easily set up system. Sure. And, and we, you know, that's kind of how this has to be looked at is this, this holistic, how can everything feed each, each other? Um, and I don't mean even mean that in some kumbaya way. I mean that in a logistical way where, you know, a very basic permaculture principle is modern agriculture is a fishing line and permaculture is a net. And we can expand that net into all of these disciplines. Yeah, that's great. I like that analogy. So let's look at another one. I think one of your 12 areas was, was healthcare. Yes. So what were your, some of your solutions there? You don't have to go deep. I don't want you to spoil your book, but just that's give people kind of a you know, wet, wetting of, the, uh, of the, the mouth, so to speak, on what they can expect to find. Sure. Well, well, something that definitely drives me crazy just just watching TV and this stuff is the the whole. It's preventative healthcare. I think is such a, a big thing of of staying healthy. You know, you're either in the hospital or you're not in the hospital. When you're in the hospital, you're paying money. So do everything you can to stay out of the hospital, and that just includes basically staying hydrated, sleeping enough, having a good diet, practicing good hygiene, having a good balance of of work and downtime and you know, spending spending time alone, spending time with other people. It's just sort of keeping everything in balance. And the more you can do that, the less you're going to need this this other treatment. And I guess then once you do need some sort of treatment, you know, to explore all these alternative things like uh, yoga, medicinal plants and remedies and uh, things like that. I, I could say I, I'm confident when I say this, tens of thousands of lives a year if the Medical establishment of the United States of America would allow me to make one simple change. It doesn't even cost any money. And it would be that anybody with mild hypertension, prior to going on any type of hypertensive medication, be put on a program, not even of diet, of just simple relaxation meditation for, for three months before you gave them any medication. Again, mild. Not the guy that's going to have his heart explode and die tomorrow if you don't do it. Mm-hmm. And, and there'd be a lot of resistance to it. But if everybody that went to every doctor out there got that as an initial prescription, and I, I bet you if half the people tried it, we would save tens of thousands of lives. Because as many people whose lives are prolonged by that medication, we kill people with it. We kill people with it all the time. Especially we put young people on it. My, my friend Hal Dodd, I'm convinced, died from hypertension medication because on his own he went off it and then back on it. And and, and that happens every day. People do that. Wow. I, I'm yeah, I'm not familiar with uh with hypertension medication. I guess it's high blood pressure is what I'm Okay. Saying. Yeah. I mean, that's well and, and, and that is something and we spend billions on that stuff. And I'm not saying nobody needs it. I'm not I'm definitely not saying to somebody that's out there that's been on it for five years to throw it away. You know, I mean and it's it's such a dangerous medication to come off of but that's just one example. So, like, my thought has always been if you have a problem, especially a chronic problem, because that's the thing that medical science today is the worst at treating, doesn't it make sense to try things with no negative effect before you switch over to something with potential side effects? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But a good third of every every pharmaceutical commercial is telling us the negative effects because they already know. But, you know, so it's it's. Well, and they don't make money. Drug companies don't make money curing illness. They make money treating illness. So it's against their business model to make illness go away. The the goal of the pharmaceutical companies in America today is to make illnesses manageable 
and prevalent. And, and, and you know, I was just did a show recently where I'm like, I'm not getting on the doctors because to blame the doctors for the medical industry would be like blaming the soldier for the war. Right. The soldier's not the one that ordered the invasion. Right. It's the generals and the politicians that couldn't solve the problem any other way. They get to blame for the war. The doctor is the result of the healthcare, the, 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 the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry and the hospital industry. Those are three massive industries that are basically using the doctor the way that a politician uses a soldier. Yeah. No, well, very well said. And it's. Yeah, if everybody's a pawn, then who are we, who are we putting our finger at? I mean, I guess it is the generals and the higher ups, but you know, you go in deep enough, and you don't even know who's telling them what to do. So it's this this whole faceless animal that's continuing to make to make it so difficult to get by, and or, or I guess get basic health care. And but yeah, I, I mean, it's individual responsibility. We have to start taking care of ourselves. And, you know, if, if, if you eat McDonald's every day, it, you're going to probably get health problems. So there's nothing that's going to save you. You just have to stop eating McDonald's. That's like, you know, just yesterday I did a, a segment on food poverty in America. Um, 20 shocking facts about hunger in America. And the last one was the only one like it. And to me, it was the most shocking. It was that we throw away 40% of our food in this country, either because it's not harvested, it goes to waste, people throw it out in the garbage, whatever, while other people go hungry. And part of that is understanding, well, we do, while we're doing that, we have people on food stamps, on welfare, on all these support programs that weigh 300 pounds and ride around in a scooter. Um, Right, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not. Again, I'm actually saying the system's the problem. Yeah. The, the the person that's in that scooter gets some responsibility for it, but there's also some level of victimization there because they're being fed in the the food that they're given. Right, they're being fed the least healthy, most obesity causing food on the planet. Then they're getting government health care to buy medication to treat the type two diabetes that they have, which could be cured simply with like not eating that food anymore. Yeah. Um, we just had an experiment that we were looking at where a, a group of doctors took 100 patients with type 2 diabetes. They put every one of them on a calorically restricted diet of 800 calories a day. These were all severely obese people. They had a 100% 180-day cure rate of type 2 diabetes. <laughs> Not 99, 100, 100 of 100 people no longer require, just by reducing their caloric intake. <laughs> To a level that you and I wouldn't do well on, but they needed it to get where they were going. Yeah, yeah, and it worked. It worked. It worked. Son of a, and it didn't cost. It cost less. Yeah. Because does it cost more to feed a person five thousand calories, or you know, a reasonable diet for an adult uh, male man or woman of you know thirteen hundred to twenty five hundred? Well, obviously, it costs less to feed them less, and it costs a hell of a lot less to give eight hundred. Yeah. Yeah, let's well, save money and, and get healthier. I mean, it's. I mean, you said it. They're they're just continuing to to feed us and just, you know, all these these indications to keep status quo, keep eating the fast food and keep keep on. But and and um, I guess the whole concept is also the uh, the subsidization of the most unsustainable things that we could possibly be growing. So if you look at everything that's hev- not everything that's subsidized, but everything that's heavily subsidized in agriculture, it's corn, it's wheat, yeah. it's barley, it's rice, you know, and, and, and those in soy, 
Those are your big five, and those are and you know cotton's in there when cottonseed oil becomes part of the food system. And I, I tell you what, honest to God, folks, anybody if you've ever looked at cottonseed oil when it's pressed out of the seed and looked at it and smelled it, you'd never eat anything with it in it again. <laughs> you wouldn't. I mean, nobody wants to eat, but it's in so many things, yeah. and all of these subsidies lead us in the direction of things that are infinitely unsustainable and, and poor nutritional products. And I'm not. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a paleo guy, but I'm not opposed to you know using some wheat for certain things or corn for certain things. But to make it the mainstay of your diet, you all you have to do is look at obesity in America. And I'm not talking about the guy with a beer gut. I'm talking about people that have an elbow that they can hide the first joint of their finger in. Yeah. And and that person's and most of those people of that weight in America today are considered impoverished. Yeah. And how, I want to ask you this. How does that contrast with poverty that you've seen in other nations? Uh, the obesity here? As, yeah, as, versus in an impoverished, a quote-unquote poor person. Do you see fat, poor people in Cape Verde? Uh, not, not many. Very, not many. Very few. I'm, it's interesting that there's a few. Well, you go into an urban area, and there's always going to be some overweight people. Yeah. Uh, but I, I wouldn't even say that, though. I, I wouldn't say there, there are many and, and you know, people in other countries, it's it's little things like just walking around. If you don't have a car, you have to walk to the market. You have to walk to the to the bus station to, to catch a lift somewhere. You have to walk to school to your job, and that right there is is a lot of you're burning a lot of calories. And uh, so, is transportation one of your twelve areas? Yes. And and how do you see, let's say, an eco village offering solutions to that problem? Oh, uh, well, I would think. I mean, uh, or maybe we should call it a perm a permaville designed community instead of an eco village. Well, because you kind of have a different approach on this, so maybe that's more fair to you. Yeah, more, more or less same same difference. Um, I mean, transportation. I, I don't know. I, I'm a big bicycle fan. Really like bicycles. Uh, that so I think trying to promote those uses and you can have bike taxis or you can put these sidecars on. Uh, well, I guess I don't know. Maybe pulling people around. Uh, Let's see. I guess it's mainly thinking about the the paths, the terminals, and the vehicles, and those are sort of the main things to to consider. So it's, uh, I guess, just I don't know. I'm not really going any any particular direction here. I, I do. I found this one map that's that's pretty great that lays out a national bicycle grid for the U.S. And I think for because you know there are a lot of people taking bike trips here and there, and it's just it's a great mode of transportation. So I think promoting that uh, in any area is good. I think there's there's a couple things there that that are hindering that thing in America today. Number one, it's so daggone easy to have a car, and I don't want to fix that problem, right? I, I really don't. I want people to make this choice freely, but that's you got to be honest and say you know for nothing down in X dollars a month, everybody can have a car. And, and, and a lot of our poor people also have cars, you know, and, and that's just unheard of in a lot of societies. That a, a person you would even it wouldn't be that that person doesn't deserve a car, just you wouldn't call them poor anymore. They got a car, they got a house, they got a, a pool, and they eat well. They're they're not poor, and we we call that poor here. The other thing though is okay. So if you told me where I used to live in Arlington, Texas, we'll just ride your bike everywhere. My first concern is ending up dead. <laughs> right. So so you're talking about your, your your pathways and areas where it's actually safe to use that mode of transportation. And then the other thing is, OK, dude, it's one hundred and eleven degrees on an average summer day. Yeah. And the closest place I can go to do my grocery shopping is four and a half miles away. Sure. And 
So to me, it's also about making things more of the kind of the old neighborhood, old town community way where, you know, the store that you do your grocery shopping at, at least a lot of the time, is is walkable or bikeable. It's It's got the distance and there's a safe way to get there. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there, there's definitely in, in transportation it, because it's not just a a, a village central thing because you have to get to the village, so it, it encompasses greater things. And you, you could take this as far as like you know restoring Amtrak and getting these national uh, lines to lay out you know electric trains going across the country. You could power them on wind turbines. Uh, I think a lot of urban areas should have public trans transit systems, better subways. Uh, ride shares. Um, yeah, it's going to be yeah, it's going to be dependent on the size of of where you are and and however much uh, I don't know, yeah, you want to bite off. Yeah, and you know, here's the thing: on the public transit, um, a lot of people say, "Well, people don't use it." And and my experience has been that people don't use poorly designed public transit. That's absolutely correct. But if you go to New York City, you'll see millions of people every day use that subway. And the reason is, if I want to get from the northern tip of Manhattan to the southern tip of Manhattan Island, I can do it, and I can do it with just maybe one or two changes. I can do it affordably. I can do it efficiently because the Dadgon thing was designed to get people to where they act, from where they are to where they want to go. If I go to D.C. and get on the metro station, it works, and there's people on it like you wouldn't believe. Sometimes you can't. You wait for the next one just so you can fit in without feeling like you're crammed together. And there's another one in 15 minutes. I, 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 there's, there's something about a good metro that that really pleases me. I don't know. It's just what you said. It's getting. You can get anywhere in 20 minutes in just a couple bucks. And yes. Then if I go to Dallas and look at something called DART or the Dallas Area Rapid Transit System, uh-huh. which is exactly not what it claims to be, yeah. I find all these trains going from where nobody is to know where nobody wants to go. <laughs> yeah. And then they go no and then they don't even have enough brains to actually make sure that people pay their fare. It's like an honor system to pay your fare. Mm-hmm. And I look at that and go, you know, if you built one of these from the frickin' airport to downtown. Right? And then you built it to the other airport, and then you connected Dallas and Fort Worth together, and then you put a line from any of those places to, like, the downtown Arlington area where the Cowboys Stadium, the Rangers Stadium, and you built that as your core infrastructure. Son of a gun, people might use it. Then they might pay for it. Then you might be able to build more lines to these outlying areas. But they're so concerned with serving the unserved area, they put something there, and then everybody goes, well, that's great, but there's a reason it's unserved. Yeah. You know, there's like three people on a million-dollar train. Absolutely. And we could have bought those people a freaking hybrid, paid their electric bill for less than giving them that train. Yeah. Yeah. So it can be done, though, because we've seen D.C. and New York City do it right. They do. They do. And it's one of those things, it has to be everywhere or it's or nobody's going to use it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm from Atlanta, and it's the same thing. You can, you, they have it tied up to the airport and the suburbs, but beyond that, it's it's it doesn't go everywhere yet. And I think... If they make that investment, people would use it. But, I mean, those are the kind of risks that governments are not known to be taking. So, I'll say this for Atlanta, though. I used to go there a lot for trade shows and things like that in the downtown area. And I never once took a cab to or from the airport. Yeah? And not because I was trying to save the world. Because it was, you got off, you paid a couple bucks, you sat on the train, you ended up right in the middle of downtown, you walked 15 feet to your hotel. Why would I take a taxi? Sure. No. Fair enough. Fair enough. For for downtown down in downtown Atlanta, it, it is uh, effective. 
So at least they were – see, because Dallas wasn't even smart enough to do that. Yeah. one of the biggest airports on planet Earth, and they're not smart enough to connect it to their downtown area. And it just – but yet they put in a, a, a like a $9 billion line to Irving, which is like 15 minutes away by car, if that, even with traffic. Wow. And it, it just doesn't make any sense. So I just want to speak up for you because I know people out there – uh, going, you know, the stuff doesn't work, but it does work in certain places done the right way. Sure, sure, absolutely. And uh, yeah, you can use those as examples to to, to leverage from. And, and not everybody needs one, right? Not every town's big enough to warrant a freaking subway. That's right. You know, but, but the ones that are, we could do it right. And then if we connect those with larger rail systems, um, I know we're kind of going off topic here, and I'm sorry, but just. You know, thinking out loud. Sure. One thing, Amtrak sucks in like a whole big piece of the country. Um, but in the Northeast, they're actually very efficient, very well run, and very heavily used. So I used to have to work in D.C. I lived in Allentown. I would drive to Philadelphia, get on an Amtrak train. I could plug in my computer. I could work the entire time. I could talk to my clients. I'd you know hit downtown Washington, D.C. I had a metro there. I could go to any part, any area. And if I did need a car... One of my sales reps would pick me up. We'd go do calls. They'd drop me off at a different station, and I could be back to my hotel. So there is the place for this. It's just that when somebody says, well, not everywhere, they're right, and the advocate needs to see the other side. Sure. No, I, so I'm, absolutely. I'm sorry we segued there, but no, it's, no, well, it's, it's an interesting discussion. Sure, sure. And, and it goes more to show that you know, lo- local politics works local. So I think people in all these areas, uh, you know, the people in New York are going to keep that railway system there if they can and because it works. And then in other places, the people are going to know, uh, you know, that maybe it's not worth it, their investment. Yeah, and I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a big part of New York City. In 1975, a visitor to New York City was very unlikely to use the subway because of safety concerns. Then uh, Giuliani came in. In between there, we had the Guardian Angels come in. And the system was made safe. And then all of a sudden it became something that the average tourist could. And, and the other thing for New York, as, as bad a rap as those guys get, if you don't know where you're going and you know where you want to get to in New York and you go down on a subway platform, 20 people will fall over themselves to tell you which train to get on. And they won't send you to Brooklyn. Yeah. So it has to be that community piece and it has to be safe. Yeah. yeah definitely. So let's move to another area because we've kind of beat that one pretty hard. Um, what is one of your other 12 areas? Uh, there's another one that, that's energy that I think okay. it, it kind of ties in with transportation here. And one last note on transportation. I think, uh, you know, I think that there are so many ideas that we have not figured out. I mean, you know, uh, energy being one of them, the fact that it's still so expensive and this high reliance on fossil fuels and, and cars being, you know, a huge consumer of it. You, know, you, you can run your car off of vegetable oil and all these other things and even water. I mean, I've seen some things online, you know, the whole hydrogen thing. And, and these things are not getting enough research. And I know this is this is a long time thinking down the road, but I just feel like to be able to get these ideas going without the, the corporate interest and in that kind of being involved in it, you, you got to have that framework. And I think you could use this this sort of framework to try to just get some of these research and ideas going on. Um, sure if that makes sense, but no, it makes sense. And I think the energy thing ties into the transportation thing because that's one of our main energy things. Sure. But if you design a city or a town or a community or a city of community so that each community can get a lot of things done on a bike on foot and it's actually pleasurable, then you don't have to take anybody's car away. You don't have to institute any greater mileage standards. Your energy consumption drops. 
mm-hmm. because people make the choice. Be- and that's the problem. Instead of forcing choice, we need to design systems that encourage the choice because it's better, right? You've got to do it better, not, you know, you can't force this. It's been tried. It hasn't worked with, with, with uh, being forced. Mm-hmm. But it's also been done almost by accident in some places. You know, some towns, everybody walks. Why? Because you can. Yeah. You know, I mean, when we were in California, my wife kept saying, I'd love to live here in some ways because you can walk to everything. Wow. And then there were other reasons we didn't want to be there. <laughs> but the walking part was nice to be able to do it if you wanted to. Pedestrian friendly. That's, uh, yeah, people, I, I would like that. Uh, but there are some other ways we can meet energy needs and maybe not meet them at their current demand, but we can meet some portion of them and begin to reduce demand. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, the, you know, there are always the basic things like solar panels and, uh, you know, concentrated solar power where they just have these big reflecting things that are uh, mirrors focusing on one point that boils the saline solution and that turns the steam, uh, steam turbine. Uh, solar street lights. That's an easy way. Just put a small panel on on top of the street light to be able to to power lights in a public area. Um, wind turbines. I'm actually working on a wind turbine uh, farm right now. Or I just finished work in Minnesota, and that's definitely uh, an up an up and coming industry. Uh, I don't know. I love wind because it goes up and down as far as scalability. Mm-hmm. So, like, a person can very effectively put a relatively small wind machine in their backyard if they have the space and area where it's conducive and it'll work. You can put a fairly large, let's call it a, a mid to small size wind farm in to run a small community. Or you can roll out, like in Texas, we're becoming the number one producer of wind energy in the country. In fact, Texas by next year will probably be producing more wind energy than any other two states combined. And that can be distributed all over the grid. That's right. Yeah, and it plugs straight into the to the national grid and can be accessed uh, yeah, for wh- wherever you need it to go. Um, there, there's a lot of research that that needs to be. You know, what one of the drawbacks of wind turbines is that it only you have to use the electricity as soon as it's created, and oftentimes it blows at night and it's intermittent. You get, you don't have that constant source. And there's this really really interesting project out in the Canary Islands that I've been following. Uh, they're trying to make one island completely energy independent, and they're using they're set up you know six or eight uh, wind turbines to pull uh, to, for electricity in the local town, and then when all the electricity needs are met or at night they pump the they use the excess energy to pump water into this high valley, and then as we were talking about earlier they they hooked up a hydro uh, generator at the base of this valley so that they can bleed it out and have this constant supply of energy to the town. So So pump it up, let it come back down, put it back where it came from. And it's actually a more direct application of the wind energy because you can use mechanical energy to pump it up instead of doing the conversion. And then you get hydro is extremely efficient. That's that's genius. My, my low tech simple solution would be that right now when we build an average house in America, we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on it. Mm-hmm. So 1200 bucks into the cost of a home is, is not much today. Sure. Um, and if every home in America, at least the ones we build new or do significant remodels on, had a closet full of batteries and a grid-tie backup power arrangement, mm-hmm. a lot of our problems go away. Yeah. And I can buy a damn good golf cart, six-volt golf cart battery for about 200 bucks, brand new. <laughs> there you go. Right? So if we start distributing storage, yeah. right, because you're talking about a big way to store it, 
And then I'm talking about a small-scale distributed way to store it. So if I built an eco-village, I, I think, you know, I don't want to tell people how to live, but I think one of the requirements, if you want to tie into a community electrical production system, is you provide some level of backup. Yeah. Because that makes you more self-sufficient, but it also makes the entire thing more more of a web instead of a straight line. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's more security. Uh, it, yeah, just, just knowing that you're going to have that. Um, and like you said, the wind don't always blow, but now I don't have to necessarily burn the power when it's produced. Mm-hmm. That could be done nationally. That could be done in a village level. That could be done in a, a farm. If, if if you were came to me and said, I want you to help me put together my self-sufficient one-off farm. I'm going to be here all by myself. I'm not going to have a community. You can bet backup power is going to have to go with power generation for that reason in of itself. But, man, I like the idea you have from the, the, the Canary Islands. I never <laughs> would have thought of that, and that could be taken down lower scale. I mean, if I've got a wind uh, generation machine that I can mechanically pump water with all day long I can, or, or all night long when my winds are heaviest, I can use that water flow, generate power, and irrigate. That's right. That's right. That that's genius, really. Constant stream. That's absolutely genius. And it's not you know you think you think something's new and then you look at it and you go that's not far off Sepp Holzer. No. no. <laughs> it's really not. No. Yeah, he's using hydraulic ram pumps to get the water back up. That's right. And then he's letting the water come down, and then he's running that through hydro. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. That that is such a beautiful arrangement he's got up there. <laughs> Uh, and not everybody has that much fall to work with, but the person that does will complain that they don't have a flat enough piece of land. So it's always about working with what you have. Exactly, exactly. And, it, yeah, that's that's definitely going to work where, where he is there, and it'll be different everywhere else. But, uh, well, the one time we came out of a question on your end, um, if I sounded a little distracted, it's because I was over on Amazon buying the Kindle version of your book. Awesome, thanks. Uh, so I, I've just downloaded Well, it's being sent to my iPhone right now on my Kindle app. Thanks. And I'd like other people in the audience to do that because I think you're on to something here, and I think we can all learn a lot and expand on it. Um, so you want to tell people how they can get a copy of your book? Sure. Uh, it's, it's on uh, permaville.com. It's a website, and you can get it on Amazon as well, and it's on Kindle, and then there's a PDF version available on the website as well. And again, we're talking about 12 areas of concern for dependents and 180 permaculture-based solutions for them. And uh, Brian, man, thanks for the work you've done, and thanks for your service overseas in the Peace Corps. I think that a lot of times people don't recognize how much effort goes into that program, and uh, what a great service you guys did. Oh, well, thanks a lot, Jack. Yeah, uh, great, great to be here. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Brian Newhouse, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.
body of their cares. They're living for. 